how many uh, skipped over the genealogies? Okay, very good. I love it. The honesty here. So some of you didn't. Some of you are to be highly commended for uh, battling your way through. If you did skip the genealogies, uh, be absolved. You're okay. Uh, you're not alone. All right. Uh, let's just be honest. They're they're long. Uh, they they can tend to be a little bit boring. Uh, and so and so had a son named so and so and so so. And that's the other thing is the names uh, are not easy to pronounce. Names like Ashkenaz and Togermah. It, it just gets it gets tiresome very quickly. So if you skip those, you're you're okay. You're gonna you're gonna be all right. Um, but at the same time, I would like to say this: that uh, we 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 should recognize that those are there for a reason, right? After all, this is the Bible. My conclusion is that those long boring lists of difficult-to-pronounce names did not make it into the Bible as an oversight. Uh, they're, they're, there, they're there for a reason. And, and really, here's one thing that they do for us, is they provide the backstory a little bit. They tell us a little bit about a person and where that person came from. And, and that's important to know. Uh, you know, I don't know about you guys, uh, I like... Movies that dig into the backstory, you know what I mean? Like Batman, some of the Batman movies, the st- like the opening scene is always this action scene where the guy's coming in and doing the ninja moves and just, you know, wiping out 12 guys, and, and you don't know anything about them. You're going, oh, wow, that's crazy. But then they go back, and then they show, you know, young Bruce Wayne at five years old. His parents were killed by thugs in the street. and They tell you what led up to him being the person... He is today. So it's kind of important for us to know that. In our culture today, we recognize that to some degree. I mean, if you think about it, it's, I, I realized this this morning. It's just, this, is, this particular example is just starting to change. But over the last 50 years in our country, the name Kennedy was an important name. People understood the Kennedys. That was a clan, a family. There was some history there. I think, we're, I think they're finally going all away. I don't know. Is there any Kennedys left in office anywhere? What? They're all dead. No, they're not all dead. <laughs> but, but they're old. They're old. Uh, but, you know, but there is that heritage. History sports are like that, too. You know, I was thinking about this. Uh, most of you, if you're football NFL fans, you know who Peyton Manning is and Eli Manning is. But I grew up in the 70s watching Archie Manning play football, play quarterback for the New Orleans Saints. Yes, okay, so there's a couple old guys here who... Uh, there's history behind that. You know, you have people like Paris Hilton, who is just so famous for nothing. Um, what makes her famous? Really, what makes her famous is the, the fact that her great-grandfather founded the Hilton Hotel chain. That's really it. There's a history there. There's a backstory that... that got her to where she is today. Culturally, though, for us, uh, we probably don't place as much emphasis or as much value on that history as uh, was done in ancient Israel and in in the ancient uh, Near East. Uh, The the genealogies in Scripture really are important. They're there for a reason to to let us know um, where a person came from and, and, and who that person was and what 
led up to them being who they were. So this morning, I thought we would do something uh, kind of gearing up for Christmas, beginning to just sort of gently enter into the holiday season. I, I want to look at uh, the, the birth of Jesus this morning through the backstory. And, and so what I, uh, I titled the message today, Silent Night, the Prequel. So kind of the genealogy of Jesus, the, the history that led up to uh, His birth, on Christmas Eve. So let's, uh, let's pray and then we'll, we'll get into it. Father, thanks for your word, your goodness. Uh, thank you for uh, who you are and, and what you mean to us and the impact and the importance of the birth of Jesus uh, on our lives, on history, on the whole world. Uh, we uh, open our hearts to receive that this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So what I want to do is uh, I want to take a look at the, the genealogy of Jesus as it's recorded in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, Matthew's Gospel is, uh, the, the genealogy there is a little bit unique on a couple levels. First of all, Ma- Matthew includes the names of five women in the line of Jesus, which is very unusual. Most genealogies uh, only tell you the men, the sons of so-and-so, and they, they omit the women. There are a couple places uh, in the Old Testament where a woman is mentioned, but it's very, very uh, unusual and unique. Uh, so that's one thing that makes his stand out. Uh, this was a very patriarchal society. Men were valued in a, in a very different way than women were, and so most of the time the women's names were left out. Uh, another thing is that um, in genealogies sometimes they will skip generations. Not everybody is always listed. And the reason for that is simply that some people were deemed as being more important in that history than others. And so some of the lesser important people that had uh, less impact on that person were left out. Um, I mention that because of these five women that, that Matthew mentions, uh, you know, at, at least uh, two or three of them are people that um, you might think he would have wanted to leave out, might wanted to skip over. They were not the most, uh, let's just say, uh, spirit-filled, faithful, devout followers of God. They had some bumps in their history. Uh, so we're going to look at those. I'm going to read the genealogy, but I am not going to read the whole thing because it's long and boring and filled with names that are hard to pronounce. Uh, so I'm just going to skip and read a few verses. I'll start at verse 1 and then read verses 3 through 6 and verse 16. And the reason for those is that in those verses are where uh, these five women are mentioned, and, and that's who I want to focus on today. So verse 1 is, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. So that's a summary. And then he begins uh, with Abraham, who was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. 
Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David, who was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, I put Bathsheba in parentheses. That's not in the text. Uh, Matthew doesn't mention her by name, but wants us to know who she was. Wants us to know that uh, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And Jacob, and finally, verse 16 then, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary, of course, was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So I want to take a, a couple minutes and look at each of these five ladies that are listed in the genealogy of Jesus this morning. The first is Tamar. Uh, how many of you ever heard of Jesus referred to as the Lion of Judah? Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Uh, Jesus is the Lion of Judah because of Tamar. Uh, he comes through, oh sorry, is that really? Oh, better there. Yeah, I already tried, buddy. Nice try. Uh, uh, Jesus is the line of Judah because uh, he comes through Tamar. Uh, her story, um, Judah was, of course, one of the 12 sons of Jacob or Israel. Judah uh, leaves his brothers. We're not told why. He just decides to strike out on his own, goes to Canaan. There he marries and has three sons. Uh, his first son is uh, a young man named Ur, E-R, Ur. So if you're uh, you know, considering a family, looking for a name, uh, you might want to call your son Ur. Ur. It's easy to say, two letters, easy to spell, Ur. Ur marries Tamar, but uh, then Ur dies. So by law, the next brother in line would be required to marry uh, the elder brother's wife so that that family line could be continued. So Ur's younger brother, Onan, then marries Tamar. But Onan doesn't want children because he uh, is bitter, thinking that, well, they won't really be my kids, they'll be my brother's kids. Uh, So he avoids having children. And you can read that part yourself. But uh, he eventually dies as well. Their younger brother, Shelah, is too young to be married. So Judah, the father, uh, tells Tamar, hey, uh, I want you to just go live with your father. I want you just to live as a widow until he's old enough to get married to you. But uh, Judah really doesn't want his youngest son to get married because the the first two, they had had no children. And so there was no heritage, no family line. Judah is fearful that Tamar is either infertile or cursed and can't have children. So he sends her away really thinking that I don't want my younger son to marry him. And then after that, Judah's wife dies. He goes into a period of grieving. And then after he comes out of this time of grief, um, he kind of continues life. And he's going to go to a, a livestock festival. I think uh, there's, a, there's sheep shearing and things going on. It might be the flock and fiber festival. I don't know. Um, but uh, Judah, uh, Judah is going to go there, uh, and that's where we will pick up the story. Tamar, I'll just this much, Tamar hears about this. She knows he's going there. She also has, uh, she knows that the youngest son is old enough to marry and that, she, you know, he hasn't called her back to marry him. So she's, she's caught on to what's going on here. So what she does, she takes off her widow's clothing, she puts a veil over her face, and she waits for Judah at the gate of the Flock and Fiber Festival. 
And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and he said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock. I'm not even going to comment. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord. The seal is worn on a cord around your neck, and it's a seal that you would stamp an envelope or mail with, and that would, it's your identification. So your seal is your identification. Uh, give me your seal and your cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. And uh, after she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Oh my, oh my, oh my. Shenanigans. Uh, Judah sends a guy back to the gate with the goat. He's keeping his promise. He's going to give her the goat. Uh, but when the guy goes back, she's not there. She's left. And he asks around. And they go, we don't know about any prostitute here. We've never seen her. So, too bad. Judah decides, forget it. If she left, I'll keep my goat. And that's that. Well, the plot thickens. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. <gasps> Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Busted, busted, busted. Um, So Judah does not put her to death. He allows her to live and she gives birth to twins, Perez and Zerah. So, we recognize here, if not for this little soap opera, that Jesus would not have been the Lion of Judah. That the reason He is the Lion of Judah is because He came through this this family uh, from Tamar. But, we also recognize here this, that in, in the bloodline of Jesus... We have a a patriarchal father of the faith who visits prostitutes. And we have a manipulative liar who poses as a prostitute uh, to uh, trick her father-in-law into being her baby daddy. Um, Well, you know, that's that. Moving on. Samuel was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, uh, we know a little bit more about Rahab, probably. Most of you have heard her story. Rahab is a Canaanite living in Jericho. Uh, Jericho is a city in Canaan. The Israelites uh, are sieging the city. They're taking over. Uh, Rahab is, is a prostitute. She's not a fake prostitute. She's a real prostitute. I want to say this. Um, prostitution in biblical times is, in, in some ways at least, not all that different than it is today it's a decision made out of desperation. In a patriarchal society, uh, a woman had very little means to generate income and care for herself. So if she was left as a widow without a son, if there was not uh, someone, uh, a man in her family to take care of her, uh, she really had only two options in life. To, to either become, uh, to go into poverty and become a beggar, uh, to, to just sustain life, or to become a prostitute. Those are really the only ways she could survive. And so it, 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 
it's a decision made out of desperation. We don't know much about uh, Rahab's history except that she was, in fact, a prostitute. We do know that Joshua sends spies into the city uh, to scope out and see, uh, get prepared for this siege that's coming. But they are seen coming into the city, uh, so the king's men are looking for them. Uh, Rahab then hides them in her house. So Rahab, I think, is, is wise here. She sees the writing on the wall. She knows what's going to happen. She knows we're not going to be able to hold against this attack by the Israelites, so she cuts a deal. Basically, she says, look, here's the thing. I'll hide you guys. I won't tell them. I'll keep you here, but you've got to let me join you. I'm on your team now. So that's the deal. Um, so she joins the Israelites, and she marries a... Uh, 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 an Israelite man named Salmon, 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 I don't know, and he gives birth to Boaz. That's her story. So we add now to the bloodline of Jesus, uh, not only, as I said, a fake prostitute, but a real prostitute. Uh, in addition, I want to add this. It's important to note that in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, we are told that it is actually against the law, the biblical law, for an Israelite to marry a Canaanite. So, in addition to the fact that Salmon married a prostitute, he also married someone outside of their ethnicity and faith and broke the law by doing that. So that also now is in uh, the history of Jesus. And then uh, following that, the next uh, person on our list is Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Now, again, most of us are familiar with the story of Ruth. I've taught through the book at least twice, I believe, here. It's a beautiful story. It's one of the probably more, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's short, and it's, it's got a lot of drama, and it's probably one of the most you know, precious stories in the Old Testament. Ruth is a Moabite woman uh, who is uh, married to a Jew, which is also prohibited in Deuteronomy law. Uh, she is, she's a desperate person as well. Uh, her... We, we find out her husband dies and her father-in-law, her, his, her father-in-law also dies. So she is uh, left to be, she becomes a beggar. She doesn't become a prostitute, but she's also a desperate person. She's, she's not popular living where she's living because she is from a different culture, but she's committed to her mother-in-law. So when, when her husband dies and her sister's husband dies and the father-in-law dies, her mother says, look, you girls go home. Go back to your land where you can be taken care of. Uh, and the sister goes, but Ruth says no, and she gives this beautiful speech that we've all heard before, which is one of the most ironic things in all of history. Um, you know, I'll go where you go. I'll stay where you stay. Your God is my God, all that, all that. It's really, it's really precious. And very, very often you hear that uh, spoken in wedding ceremonies. People will use it in a wedding, you know, because it's, it's a commitment of one person to another. But the truth is, it was given to a mother-in-law, and I don't think anyone's ever actually said that to their mother-in-law. So it's just ironic in, in that regard. I don't, Just a thought. Uh, she stays. She stays, and so in desperation, she goes into the fields to glean. The, 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 the farmers would leave a little bit of produce behind for the poor. And so they could come through and glean. That's what she's doing. It just so happens the field that she goes to glean in is owned by a gentleman named Boaz, who is the son of Rahab and Salmon. And he is also a distant relative of Naomi. Um, now, 
Boaz is older than Ruth, uh, substantially, quite a bit older. Um, but he sees her in the field. He, he notices Ruth uh, gleaning. He asks his foreman, hey, uh, who, who's that girl? And uh, I think he's impressed that she's a hard worker. I think he's impressed that she's committed to her mother-in-law. But I also think he thinks she's kind of hot. I, I mean, I just I don't know. You have to read between the lines a little bit. But when he's, these people are going, you go, hey, yeah, who, who's that? I get the idea. He's thinking, you know, I kind of like that girl. Uh, he's very kind to her. He invites her to dinner. She comes and he puts out a nice feast for her. She eats all she can. And then he says, hey, 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 here, take, take some home to your mother-in-law. You know, so he's really nice to her. Um, mother-in-law, Naomi, notices this, and she has a plan. Uh, it's got to be a good plan because there's a lot of things working against them. The reality that uh, in the law they, they can't be married, the reality that Boaz is twice her age, uh, the, the reality that uh, he's wealthy and, and she's a peasant, and so you generally wouldn't marry down like that. You'd try to marry someone closer to your own uh, socioeconomic strata there. Uh, but uh, Naomi comes up with this plan. And he, she tells her daughter-in-law, hey, look, here's what I want you to do. First of all, wash up. Get cleaned up a little bit, you know. Uh, second of all, put some perfume on so you smell good. Get a little perfume. Put some nice clothes on. And, and, and then I want you to go to Boaz's house, but don't go in. I want you just to kind of watch him uh, until after he's had his dinner and had some wine. Now, I don't know what the term for that is in Hebrew. In our culture, we would call that a stalker. Uh, She's at his house watching him through the window until he goes to bed, and then she sneaks into bed with him. This is what her mother-in-law told her to do. In fact, she said, after he's eaten and drank his wine and he lays down, she, she says, quote, go in and uncover his feet and he will tell you what to do. I, I don't know what happened here, okay? I do know sometimes uh, in the Old Testament, the word feet is used as a euphemism for something else. I'm just saying. He wakes up and there's a young woman in bed with him who has uncovered his feet. And he's surprised. That's who it is. It's Ruth. Uh, and she says then, cover me with the corner of your garment. Put your nightshirt over me as well. Uh, looks a little suspicious to me, I'm just saying. Um, and I'm not making that up because in the morning he tells her, hey, don't let anybody see you leaving here, okay? So sneak out before the workers get in. Um, the plan worked. Naomi's plan worked. Uh, this, this young girl goes in and, you know, uh, spends the night with him. They end up uh, getting married. And she gives birth to Obed. Um, Again, uh, I think when we read the New Testament, we think of Jesus as being 100% Jewish, but Jesus is really very multi-ethnic. He's, he's got now in his line 
a, a, a mother who was a Moabite, a father who was half Canaanite and half Jewish. So there's really a, 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 a multiracial sort of uh, history in Jesus' own family line. And adi- in addition to that, we now add to fake prostitute and real prostitute a stalker in his history. Um, so that's just kind of how things have unfolded. Uh, but the best is yet to come. Because now we get to uh, David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And again, we know her story. And let me just, let's, let's put all the cards on the table. If Ruth was kind of hot, Bathsheba was, you know, really hot. Okay, let's, can we say that? Uh, David, and Scripture tells us, it's at a time when he should have been off fighting a war. But he wasn't. He was home uh, on the roof uh, checking out the neighbor. And the neighbor is on her roof taking a bath. Um, David has wives. David has concubines. But uh, he wants to know who this is. So he again sends, he sends somebody over to find out who she is. Uh, finds out she's married, but who cares? Why? Because I'm the king. And we all know it's good to be king, right? It's good to be king of your own little world. Good to make friends. Good to meet girls. I'm just saying. Um, Bathsheba has no ability to really say no when the king requests her presence. She ends up pregnant, uh, which is not good for David. It was not his plan. Uh, So he devises a plan to cover his own tracks. He brings her husband home from the war and uh, in hopes that he will spend the night with his wife and everyone will think it's his child and he'll be off the hook. But her husband Uriah is an honorable man and he says, hey, if if my men in the field can't spend the night with their wives, then I'm not going to spend the night with my wife. And he sleeps on the front porch. So after he goes back, David is uh, really stuck here. He's in a difficult situation. So he does... The only thing really left for him to do, and is that is that he has him killed. He sends a, a word to the commander of the forces, says, hey, when they attack, you pull back and you let him stay up front. Uh, and uh, Uriah is killed uh, so that David can then marry uh, Bathsheba and the child will be legitimate. Um, D- David is remembered in history as a man after God's own heart. David is remembered as a man with, uh, who wrote psalms and who really pursued God with everything. But as it relates to the bloodline of Jesus, this is David's darkest hour. And, and this is one story that I'm sure he would have rather we not know about. We add to the bloodline of Jesus today the already uh, list of Uh, less than admirable situations, Uh, a king who abused his power in very selfish ways, who lied, who was an adulterer, who was a murderer, and who, in in my estimation, may very well have been a rapist. And we don't know that, but I just, again, reading between the lines, would say that this was not a consensual situation. So finally, we skip ahead to Mary. Now, Mary and Joseph, you guys know their story well. And they, 
Mary and Joseph didn't do anything wrong. But it sure looked like they did, didn't it? Even Joseph initially did not believe her when she came and said he was pregnant. His plan at that point was, uh, I believe, brokenhearted to send her away quietly uh, and divorce her and move on with his life until what happens? Uh, He has a dream and an angel of the Lord appears and explains the truth to him. But the reality is this, that throughout Mary's life, she would carry that stigma with her. And we also know that throughout the life of Jesus, he carried that stigma with him. He was viewed as a bastard child uh, always. And at one point, even during his ministry, he's in a, in a conversation, a debate with the Pharisees, and, and they turn to him and say, well, you know, hey, we, we at least know who our father is. So why did I take the time today to share some of the, uh, you know, maybe less than pleasant stories in Scripture with us. Uh, because God did all that on purpose. We, we don't get to choose our, our bloodline. We, we have no choice over who our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents were. But God does. God is in control of the entire situation. He chose His heritage. God chose his heritage. And he did this all on purpose. The, the, look, the bloodline of Jesus is a genealogical hot mess. But God chose it that way. He chose his identity. And God identifies with sinners. And so, uh, for any sinners that are here today, welcome. God chose you. He calls you family. He said, uh, Jesus said, I I didn't come to save the righteous. I didn't come to call the righteous, but what? To save sinners. He he identifies with sinners. Uh, Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever your history, uh, whatever things that you wish others or hope others will never know, uh, even as in the life of David, whatever that is, he wants to call you family. God wants to call you His family. Something uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, I think Ravi said something. I think it was here, but it might have been in another meeting. But he said, God looks at the end of the situation, not the beginning. And let me say this. When, when Jesus came into that bloodline, He redeemed the bloodline. He transformed it. In Hebrews 11, Rahab is listed as one of the heroes of the faith. Jesus completely transformed that bloodline. Jesus completely transforms everything. All of the bad things in our life should should not have happened, but they did. But as we surrender them to Jesus, we talked about it this morning with, with fear, but that's true of any bad thing that's happened in life. We surrender those things to Jesus, and then He's able to transform those. Uh, and make them into something precious that he loves. Um, So I just encourage you, wherever you've been, whatever's happened in your life, whatever history you might be ashamed of, you surrender that to the Lord and he will transform it and make it right. A couple other things I think are worthy of mention here. Uh, One is, of course, we we talked about the five women in the genealogy of Matthew. Um, Look, Matthew included them intentionally, all right? Um, Matthew wrote this scripture 
under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit as all Scripture was written. And I believe he had a purpose in doing so. Um, there, there, I, there's another whole message about how Jesus transforms culture. And I, I, someday I'll give that message, although it won't be popular. But uh, the way that Jesus transforms culture. T- today I want to say this, that um, he begins by pushing back against those cultural norms that are not his highest and best. He begins by pushing back against societal practices that are, that are not his, you know, the, the ultimate end of the kingdom of God. And in this case, we're looking at a culture that was steeped in gender discrimination and in sexism and in a highly, highly patriarchal society. And Jesus begins to push back against that. The, the, the thought process in that culture was that women aren't as valuable, and Jesus says, yes, they are. Uh, he's saying through this genealogy, I wouldn't be here without the sacrifice of Rahab. I wouldn't be the line of Judah without Tamar. I, I, I would never have been born except that Mary said, be it unto me as you have said. And they are valuable. And women are just as valuable and just as loved and just as vital in God's kingdom as men. And so, I would just say this, uh, ladies, you can be and do anything you want. And, and if, if you want to be uh, you want to be in ministry, you want to be a missionary, you want to be a church planter, you want to be a senior pastor, don't let anybody tell you you can't. That's, I'll argue with those that disagree later, but that's my thought on that. Um, you're just as valuable and just as vital in the kingdom of God. The final application, and it's, it's a lesser one, but I think it's also important, and it would be part of that message on transformation of society, but the genealogy includes at least two marriages that broke biblical law against interracial marriage. And I believe, again, here, Jesus is pushing back uh, against uh, societal norms in the interest of bringing about complete transformation. Uh, Jesus came to say that those, those separations that uh, we see you know, in the Old Testament, it was very... It, it, here's the thing. This is, there's so much confusion in the church today. Because in the Old Testament, who the people of God were and weren't is clear. But today, who the people of God are and aren't isn't as clear. It's not defined by boundaries and geography. It's not b- defined by ethnicity or culture. It's not defined by locale or anything else except surrender to who He is. And, and Jesus came to break down all of those things. So we'll close uh, with this today, Galatians 3. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. You are all one in Christ. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, for all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is not Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ. Let's uh, stand.